Maria Cahill Henry is a former Miss America contestant and model. She brings a message of purity and virtue in the secular world. Featured in many television, print, and radio programs, Maria's fresh look at the pressures young people face in the world today will help all ages. We ask you kindly not to film this presentation. Please welcome Maria Henry. Um, before we begin the talk, um, can we say a prayer to start? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Our Lady of the Rosary. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. How's it going today? Good, good. I'm so glad to be here. Um, again, my name is Maria Henry. I'm here with my David, who gave a talk yesterday, and then I did one with him this morning, and I'm here with my daughter Pia, who I just love so much, and they're back there. Um, and I, I usually don't like write out my spe speeches word for word, but the mom brain, guys, is so real. I, I was at, um, we had a dinner at my house a couple weeks ago, and I literally tried to put some baby back ribs into a wine glass thinking it was a plate. So that's just like kind of where my brain has been at lately. I just did a Q&A with my husband in the other room, and I was like, where's my mic? I don't have a mic, and I was sitting on it. Like, you'd think that someone would notice something like that. Okay, so I literally wrote this out word for word, and I actually wrote that out word for word every single word written out. I mean, that's the kind of mom brain we're dealing with, guys. Um, and this is actually kind of surreal for me because the last time I gave this talk, I was four months pregnant. I was at that like weird stage where you don't know if it's a baby or burrito, and now I have a four-month-old, and so it's just kind of crazy, you know, uh, to see God work in your life, and now I have a, an amazing baby, amazing husband. It's, it's really surreal, and I, and I did write here as well because I was in the, you know, habit of writing things out. I wrote, insert potential horror story about the plane ride here, because it was Pia's first plane ride, and guys, I have nothing to report. She was really great, and God loves me, and that's the end of that little segment. Um, <laughs> so when I was asked to give a talk, it was kind of specific to kind of pageants and living in a Catholic culture and parenting, which I thought was interesting because I'm like, oh, I've only been a parent for four months, so I don't really know a whole lot. And I'm not really involved in the pageant world anymore, which we'll go into. I'm actually so embarrassed by my um, description. Oh boy, I've, I feel like I've separated myself from so much of that. But um, when I was reflecting on those topics, when I was preparing this, and just thinking back to my faith growing up and how I was raised and how I picture raising my daughter, it's actually not that hard necessarily. And yes, it might be harder in practice and putting things into practice, especially in parenthood. But the beautiful thing about our Catholic faith is that we are guided by this set of principles. And these set of principles can be applied, they're applicable to all situations across the board, to our pageants, good or bad. Spoiler alert, they're, it's not good. Um, you know, to parenthood and really to everything. And so um, I'm excited to go into, you know, all of these topics because we're going to go over how these principles aren't bad things, to be governed by these sets of principles and how these principles really can be applied all across the board. And I'm very grateful to, uh, to be here. I take this um, matter of speaking about things regarding truth, capital T, very seriously because <clears throat> I've been, I say this very loosely, a Catholic speaker for years. I say it loosely because I, I refer to myself a lot of times as a period of my life being Maria BC days. And I was giving Catholic talks in my Maria BC days because I didn't really know the principles all that well. And when I had what I like to refer to as my reversion or just basically taking my faith more seriously, one of the first things I learned was the church's teaching on scandal. And that was very jarring to me because I learned that at my judgment one day, I'm not only responsible for the things that I say that are wrong, but the kind of train of errors that the original error can lead to. So for example, if I stand up here and say throwing the cats off the top of buildings is good because it can teach them to fly. If I say that and someone in the audience somehow believes that somehow and passes that error down to other people who somehow believe that and put that into practice. And at the end of my life, I'm not gonna be responsible for that error of throwing cats off of buildings, but for every single person that also believed that. So for me, that was very jarring because 
Now I have to really filter everything that I say through the Catholic lens, which is how it should be. And so you hear from me here first, don't throw the cats off of, you know, the top of buildings, but I feel like a lot of, a lot of times people too, put too much weight in opinion rather than the beauty of what the church has been teaching for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so because today's talk revolves a lot around uh, growing up in a secular culture as a young Catholic, I think it's important for me to kind of give you a mini backstory um, into kind of where I came from and my mindset going in because what I'm about to tell you is what I would like to say a normal Catholic in today's culture. And so if you had heard my talk with my husband this morning, uh, I grew up in a, on a farm with seven brothers and sisters with a bunch of bunnies and goats. And I always refer to it as kind of like the modern, Von Day, uh, modern day Von Trapp family, only minus the yodeling goats. They were like actual goats. Okay, so that was like my family. We were literally the modern day um, Van Trapp family. And my parents did a great job of instilling the seeds of the faith in us. I never one time thought faith was weird growing up or I never felt different. My family would say daily rosary every night, we'd go to mass, not just on Sundays. And so I learned a lot of base things during the early, early years of my life. I learned about the Eucharist, I learned about the saints and feast days and all that kind of thing. All that kind of thing. Um, and during that time in my life, my knowledge just stayed very grade school, which is appropriate because I was in grade school. And when I was in seventh grade, uh, my family moved from my dad's work to Delaware, which, I found out after moving there that a lot of people didn't know that was a state, but it is. I moved to, moved to Delaware, the state, and um, that's when I started middle and high school. And it was during this point in my life that I definitely learned more, don't get me wrong, more base things. Um, I definitely grew in a want to love my faith more, but I, but I will tell you that I probably didn't learn as many of the why questions um, that I wanted to. And so if you had asked me in high school, um, do you know a lot about God? I would have answered you emphatically that I did. I was like, oh yes, I know so much. I can rattle off the 10 commandments. Like that was kind of where I was at that point in my life. I, would, I thought that I knew a ton and boy, oh boy, you are gonna hear why I didn't. Um, and so after high school, it was the start of my good old downward spiral, which was college. And I was looking for different colleges. Um, I wanted to go in as a theology major, because again, in high school, I was so gung-ho. I love Jesus, I would tell everybody. And so I was looking for a Catholic college, but it was kind of odd because when I was looking at colleges, I kind of had this checklist of, you know, is this thing close to my house? How do I, this is so, so dumb sounding, how do I feel when I go on campus? I'm not sure why that makes a difference, but you know, that's what I, that's what I thought. How do I feel when I'm on campus? Um, how much money is it? And it's pretty odd going in as a theology major that Catholic, you know, I wanted it definitely to be Catholic, but that was for sure lower down my list. And you know, I was going in as a theology major, so you would have thought I would have you know, done my homework into this college that I ended up going to. I ran headlong into a Catholic college in Pennsylvania, which I, I won't tell you the name because I was giving a talk in Pennsylvania last year and one of the priests from this college was there. And so I went into this Catholic college headlong, gung-ho for Jesus. And I'll just give you a little bit of information about this college. The co-ed dorms for the uh, freshmen, or sorry, the, the freshman dorms were co-ed. Guys and girls living on the same floor with no boundaries. We're just guys and girls living on the same floor. Um, Long story short, any Catholic parent, solid Catholic parents, worst nightmare this college had. And so I ran headlong into this environment with no real principles guiding why I thought the way that I thought. You know, for the first semester, I was known as the girl that lived under the rock. Um, and I say that very specifically, for the first semester, that is what I was known as, because I didn't have an understanding, and I'll go into this a little more later, I didn't have an understanding for example, I didn't know apologetics were a thing. I couldn't even tell you what apologetics were. So when I was in a theology class with a priest professor and he told all of us that living together before you were married was actually okay, I knew deep down that that probably wasn't right because I had heard that somewhere before. And that's about it. I couldn't tell you why it wasn't right. I just kind of knew deep down that it wasn't. And so I had actual no reasons to give to counteract a statement like that to counteract a statement that says, oh yeah, sure, yeah, live together before you're married. I had no idea what to say. And that's a problem because everyone wants to know why 
Why do you believe the things that you believe? Um, and we should have the answers to them. Because we know in today's culture, saying things like, because the Bible says so, it doesn't fly. Because it leads up to a whole host of other questions that someone could have for you. Well, what, before the Bible, what happens before the Bible was written? Then what? You have to be able to answer these questions, and I couldn't. So I only went by the grace of my God speaking to my parents, I guess. They pulled me out after two years because I was a mess. I came out of this college with literally no more information about the Catholic Church than I went in with. And, you know, the only thing that I had coming out was debt that my husband, thanks be to God, just paid off after 10 years. Okay, that's the only thing that I came out with. I am not even friends with one person from that college to this day, unfortunately. So I have nothing, nothing good came out of that college. And, you know, we'll, we'll get more into this later, but why should anyone be surprised that that was my outcome? Because the world is always going to be the church in what they consider fun. Okay, and I was the number one victim to that. I was 16 going in as a college freshman. And I, I knew nothing. And I came out just a disaster. And so when I came out of college, I really was internally a disaster. But the crazy part was it wasn't to the normal world. Because the normal world saw me as someone that still went to Mass on Sundays. I never stopped going to Mass, stopped going to confession, because I thought I, I didn't need it somehow. Um, but they saw me as normal. I still went to Mass on Sundays. I still claimed to love Jesus. But, you know, I would go out and party all week and weekends and somehow think that that was okay. I, it's kind of weird. It's weird to say. I was living this kind of Jekyll and Hyde mentality um, where I was living kind of two separate lives, but trying to identify as the better of the two. I loved telling people I was Catholic. I'll tell people at the bars I was Catholic. I would try and get into debates with them about things I didn't even know about because I thought that that's what people did. I don't know, strange. And you're going to um, see this really as a problem, not only in my story, but in our culture in general, is that we really have this relativism. I was completely deciding for myself what I thought was right and what I thought was wrong. Um, so I, I did this Jekyll and Hyde thing for a couple years. I convinced myself that I wasn't too bad of a person. I was still nice. I was still nice to people, forgetting that nice is not a virtue. Um, so I did this for a while, stayed away from confession, convinced myself that I was still being a good Catholic. Um, and I don't know. I mean, thanks be to God, I, I'm married to a, a good Catholic now because, boy, oh, boy, things could have get, gotten really bad for me. After this debacle of, of two years of, of college, I came home started to go into a state school, and this is when I decided, well, I'm going to compete for uh, Miss Delaware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and compete for Miss America. <laughs> I feel so, oh boy, okay, we're going to get into this. Again, I personally decided that this was a good thing to do. Didn't ask anyone, didn't see what any of the church fathers, not that they were talking about pageants, but I didn't care to look up the principles about, you know, if this is a thing I should or shouldn't be doing. Um, this was my mentality going into a thing like that okay, well, yeah, I'm going to have to do bad things like a swimsuit competition, but don't worry, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to also do good. I'm going to talk about the pro-life movement, and I'm going to get younger girls to look up to me, and I'm going to be really relatable. Okay, that was literally my thought process, thought process going into it. I knew nothing about what I now know is called the principle of the integral good. If we're not familiar with that, it's the principle that states that for an act to be good, everything that goes into that act also has to be good. So the act itself, the circumstances, the intention, in order for an act, this is, this is a general principle, in order for an act to be good, morally good, all three of those things also have to be morally good. So I'll give you a couple examples because this, when I heard this for the first time at like 23, I was like, what? Like I'd never heard of this. An example of this would be, um, very simply, if you order a soup at a restaurant and there's a fly in it, the whole soup is ruined, even if the rest of the soup is fine, minus the spider. Okay, you throw the whole soup away. If you're going to the movies, you're going with all your Catholic friends, and you're going to see a Catholic movie, but the driver's drunk, okay, that makes the whole thing not good, and if you were smart, you wouldn't go to the movie. Let's apply this to pageants, Maria. If you have to do some evil things like, you know, I'm not going to go into full detail about it, but be in a swimsuit, even if you can do other good things, guess what that says about pageants? Okay, I don't really need to say much more about that. We can all kind of see what I'm saying about pageants and my feeling on them now. So I had never looked at, never heard of, never looked at 
the integral good. And so growing up, I would literally, not growing up, when I was doing pageants, I would literally justify the immoral aspects of pageants to people literally like EWTN. I literally went on a radio station, I'm not even gonna say it because I don't want you to find it, um, defending pageants, and they asked me specifically about the swimsuit portion, and because I, again, had no principles to anything, was like, yeah, you know, it's not the best, although I'm not sure at the time I actually thought that. Yeah, it's not the best, but you know, there's so much good you can do, and there's a focus on your talent. Whippy. <laughs> and young girls can look up to you. I mean, that host must have thought I was nuts. I literally uh, was looking at my old talks on, on YouTube the other day, and I found this one from EWTN. And I literally justified pageants for 20 whole minutes. In addition to then going on to talk about Catholic social issues that I knew nothing about. I literally went to the YouTube video and I hit the dislike button. I'm not even joking, on my own video. And then I emailed them and I asked them to take it down so I don't have to answer for it anymore by people that watch it. So it's down, you won't be able to find it, okay? But no, it's disliked and it wasn't good. Um, so yes, God can definitely draw straight with crooked lines, but I was just, I did not know that the ends do not justify the means. It is completely errored to think that we can do evil even if it's a good outcome, because actually it's not a good outcome because you're doing evil to achieve it. Guys, don't worry. If you thought my downward spiral was over, you're wrong. Because after this, I got a job, wait for it, I was 22 years old, as the head of young adults at a Catholic church in New York City, because I was clearly so qualified to be in that position. And this was a very big turning point in my life. It's the time in my life that happened right before my, what I like to call my reversion. It, ha it just, it involved some of the most confusing Catholic moments of my life. Even though I didn't recognize it necessarily as, as odd at the time, I was working at a church. And yes, I worked under a priest, but there were also lay people above me. And I was told by these lay people, not by the priest, I was told by the lay people that the literal, in my talk, I capitalized it because it's very, uh, it's very true. I was told that the only way that I could get more young adults to be involved in the church, to come to our groups, was to one, be super relatable and fun, and two, I am not joking, to make a lot of um, drinking social events because the young people, uh, by young people I mean young adults, uh, 21 to 35 is what they were labeled, the young adults would come to the drinking events. Those were my two things that I was told going into this job as a 22-year-old who already knew nothing. There was zero, zero talk about my personal growth and virtue. What can I do to be a better Catholic, to say the right things that are actually true and not just my own opinion? There was zero talk of that. To put this into perspective, my big event of the year, uh, so I started this job in August. My big event of the year that they prepped me for the first day of the job and said, Maria, this is your biggest event of the year, was in January, it was a New Year's Eve party at the church in the basement. That was a big event of the year that I had to prep for. So that kind of gives you an idea of what I was working with. And so there was a moment that happened at this church that literally God was like, I'm sick of you. I'm going to bonk you over the head to get your attention. And it was this. Every other Sunday, we're, uh, we had a, like a young adult mass, which literally just meant it was a normal Sunday mass, and the young adults would go out afterwards to drink, of course, because, again, we're seeing a theme here. And so the young adults were 21 to 35. They wanted us all to go out after, after Mass to drink. And as my job description said, I was in charge of going up to the, to the lectern after Mass, and I was supposed to tell all the young people in the pews that this is what we were doing. So I get up there, and guys, you're going to hear about this on my final judgment, so you're going to hear it here first. I literally got up there at the end of Mass, in front of the tabernacle, and I literally made a joke that was not even re remotely appropriate about something about Jesus turning water into margaritas instead of wine. We're all going out for margaritas afterwards. Okay, I literally made this joke, and it, God's still, you know, blessing me with some humility because I, I told that story to, you know, a talk last year, and literally half the audience was like, <gasps> like horrified. And I was like, yeah, guys, it was really bad. So I made this joke and didn't think anything of it. And I finished my announcements, and I, walk, and I walked back down. 
And this woman comes up to me. She was probably maybe in her 40s or 50s. This woman comes up to me after mass and she goes, oh, you know, I just had the most beautiful mass here, but you really disturbed my peace. And I was like, what? Okay. And I, I know I was kind of like thrown off by this woman that just approached me. And so I went to the guy that had originally sat me down and said, you know, you need to be relatable and fun and get people to all the drinking events. I went and I went to him and I said, hey, this is what this woman said. And he literally said, don't worry, I direct quoted him because it was so like, hmm. He said, direct quote, that's great. Don't worry about her reaction. That means you're doing something right. That was his reaction to what I said. And like, <laughs> just kind of gives me goosebumps because now, knowing what I know now, I'm like, oh. And guys, isn't that the problem in the church a lot of times? or not even just in the church, in life, is that we have the blind leading the blind. I didn't know any different. He apparently didn't know any different either. So it's the blind leading the blind, and we wonder why there are over 20,000 you know, denominations of Christianity. We have people just making up what they think the church is teaching and then spreading that to everyone else. I'm no longer at that position, obviously, but someone else is. And they're also hearing that information. It's really crazy, and you know, Again, thanks be to God that he can draw straight with crooked lines because it was while I was living in New York City that I met my now husband. So thank God I was there. Thank you, thank you God, because he is awesome. And he's a very, very holy man. And it wasn't until I met him and a lot of his friends who are very, very solid priests and theologians that I started to realize, well, dang, people are striving for you know, virtue and holiness. And I couldn't believe it. You know, I recognized that in, I'm going to kind of close the story time chapter of this, but looking back on this and reflecting this as I write it and as I, you know, read it again out loud, you know, we have a real problem with worldliness in our culture, especially with me, where you basically choose created stuff over that of God. Okay, instead of making the bars look like our churches, we're making our churches look like our bars to try and be relatable to people. It just doesn't work that way. Again, the world will always beat the church in what they consider fun. So why are we trying to be like them? Worldliness is a big problem. So after I met my husband and met, myself, uh, and met his friends that were very, very knowledgeable about the faith, my questions that I started to have, these kind of, well, why questions especially meeting them and realizing that certain things that I was, you know, partaking in things at the church that I was seeing that were very odd, by the way. I didn't realize that these things were bad. So a lot of these why questions that I had, why do I go to daily mass? What is the Eucharist actually? They started um, to be answered. And boy, oh boy, did I learn a lot. I think I spelled lot, yep, with like six T's. <laughs> because I learned a lot about humility, because I learned that a lot of what I was talking about to people, because at that point I was doing Catholic talks, I don't know about what, I learned that those things I was talking about were very, very wrong. And so that's kind of a very long-winded description into, you know, 23 years of my life, followed by five years of trying to make up for lost time, to be honest, or what, again, what I like to call my reversion. In the last five years of my life, I really was thinking to myself, how did the world view me as, oh, finally, a Miss Delaware, a good Catholic, before I had my reversion? How, how was I viewed like that? Another reaction that, you know, sometimes I, I get when I tell the story is, well, you weren't that bad. Yeah, when you learn about what the church actually teaches, I wasn't even in the ballpark of being a right Catholic. Just because I was mortally sinning different, you know, than, than someone else, I wasn't even in the ballpark. Um, and so I was trying to identify where, where I went wrong, okay? And it wasn't until the last two or three years that I feel like I actually pinpointed it. Venerable Fulton Sheen, who is awesome, by the way, he writes in his book, um, Life of Christ, regarding Judas, and it's true for all of us, especially me. <clears throat> he says, there must be an inward failure before there can be an outward one. So I was like, okay, where was my inward failure that I had before I started acting a fool in front of everybody? Okay, where was my inward failure? And looking back and reflecting, I think I pinpointed it to high school. And I was telling you about this time in my life where I wanted to love God, um, but I didn't really grow past that. I thought in high school, the Catholic Church has to be it. Has to be it. It has to be the truth. That's what I thought in high school. And that is a very, very good thing. What's not a good thing was I completely stopped there. I thought, yeah, the Catholic Church is it. I've got it. The end. I didn't realize that there was more to, more to learn, more to grow. I'll put it into perspective this way. St. Thomas Aquinas, one of 
if not the world's greatest theologian of all time. He wanted to burn all of his books because he had a, it said that he had a vision where all he had written regarding God and everything below that was a straw. He wanted to burn all of his works because all he had written was nothing. And I'm like, man, where, where did I get off being in high school thinking I had it made, knowing the Ten Commandments and thinking that that was okay? That really put things into perspective for me. And it's a shame, and I think it's really common to kind of think <clears throat> we're Catholic, we're good. And I'm like, well, well, what's that problem? And what can I do to overcome it? And I think, I, you can disagree, but I credit this problem, especially with young people, with the lack of knowledge that moral perfection is real and attainable here on earth before we die. I don't think, I didn't know that. I didn't know that perfection was a thing, moral perfection was a thing. I um, kind of was interested when I learned about perfection. I was like, I wonder what the, what the world thinks about this. Because I'm like, you don't hear perfection really talked about in a good light necessarily. I don't have any social media, so I went to my sister's Facebook and I searched perfection in like the search bar just to kind of see what people were saying. And I actually, I had to change my search because the only thing that came up were like pictures of food and this like one lone picture of Leonardo DiCaprio. It was really weird. So I changed it to um, like quotes about perfection because I just wanted to see what people were saying in regards to quotes. And you know, like people on like social media sometimes are like, oh, perfection. And they put hearts around it. I don't know. People get weird on social media. So I was just very interested about what people were saying because I knew it was attainable. This is what I learned. Okay, so I have some quotes that are on social media, being read by young people. Some were very blunt. Some would say things like this, I'm not perfect, never have been, never will be. Okay, <laughs> never have been, never will be, great. Another one I found was this, an arrogant p person considers himself perfect. Okie dokie. A third one we found was, um, perfection is overrated. Let good be good enough. Okay, those are pretty blunt. Some of them, though, were trying to be cute, and uh, they put some nice sentiment with them. Um, one was, perfection is not attainable, but if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. Like, what does that even mean? Okay, people are just trying to be really fancy. Um, my favorite one, by favorite I mean my not favorite, my least favorite, speak English, Maria. Um, my least favorite one was this. Nobody is perfect, so get over the fear of being or doing everything perfectly. Besides, perfect is boring. Okay. This is, you know, what the world considers as perfection. It's boring. And this seems to be pretty much in direct contradiction with everything the Catholic Church teaches. In the Catechism, there is so much written on perfection. It literally says, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm getting over a cold last week, so excuse me if I keep drinking this. It says in the Catechism, he who does not aim at Christian perfection is in danger of losing his soul. St. Augustine says, as soon as thou art content with thyself and thou thinkest thou hast done enough, thou art lost. St. Alphonsus Liguori literally wrote a list of 50 things we can do to obtain perfection. Christ himself said, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. Okay, this is not even the tip of the iceberg of the countless examples of perfection that the church gives. And it seems, how do we get from the point of be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect to perfection is boring? Okay, I feel like a lot of um, that complete separation just comes from the fact, and I thought this all the time growing up, well, hey, I'm not mortally sinning, even though I was. Hey, I'm not really mortally sinning, but you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm good enough. That's why I left confession for years. This doesn't take into account, one, the sin of presumption and, you know, presuming God's mercy and presuming we actually aren't sinning, mortally sinning. Um, and two, it's also assuming that we know all the intricate principles related to sin and imperfection and vice and what's the difference. You know, we also don't recognize that one venial sin, one venial sin is more displeasing um, is a single sin that is more displeasing, you know, than all the good works that we could ever do. Why? Because we're sinning against an infinitely good God and our finite works can't make up for that infinite sin. Okay, there are many steps to the spiritual life. Many, many people don't realize that the saints say that the first step of the spiritual life is to not stop mortally sinning, is to stop venially sinning. Okay, I had no idea about that. A lot of people think, well, is that even possible? Guys, that's not even the end of the spiritual life, that's the beginning, say the saints say the church. 
A lot of times people tend to throw around the, uh, the word mature. You know, oh, he's so mature. Well, you know what the church defines maturity as? Perfection in all the virtues or sanctified perfection. That's what the church defines it as. Um, I think this lack of knowledge that perfection is an attainable thing, it, you know, it's very detrimental. It's very detrimental. It was, it was very detrimental uh, to me. It's very detrimental to people that don't know that. Um, I want to go over a few other problems that, that I see in our culture, problems that I've seen firsthand, that I've dealt with, um, because a lot of my problems growing up is I didn't know what the problems were. I really thought that I wasn't sinning half the time because I had no clue what the church taught. So I want to go over a few more. So the first one first problem that I dealt with, that people deal with, is the lack of seeking perfection. The second one is the vice of curiosity. I had never heard about this until I was in my early 20s. Have we heard about the vice of curiosity? I'm going to define it really quick before I move on. <clears throat> it's a vice by which we seek useless and profane knowledge that is not suitable to our state in life. Okay? It's, not, it's not studiosity, which is the um, opposing virtue by which we seek knowledge that is suitable to our state in life. So basically, if my husband needs to go off and work and he needs to learn certain things, like that, that's studiosity, it's not curiosity. So it's also not to be confused with the general English term curiosity, which is like, how does a tree grow? Why is, why is this podium hard? Okay, that's a general English term. But the theological term... Curiosity is the vice where we seek useless and profane knowledge. And um, the desire to learn is a good thing. So it's part of the natural law. But um, it's a natural appetite, St. Thomas Aquinas says, of the intellect. And our intellect has this natural desire to want to know. We get pleasure from it. Because we get pleasure from it, it has to be moderated. Some of you, um, well, let me say this. If it's not moderated, it can lead to our downfall. One thing that I did not know was that curiosity was actually, according to the church, the first sin ever committed. It was committed by Eve before she even ate the apple. She went through a list of sins first before she actually got to the part where she ate the apple and disobeyed God. Curiosity was the first sin ever committed, says the church, not says me. Um, and because of that, we have to keep in mind that curiosity oftentimes <clears throat> is for, like Eve, an entry point to other sins. And why do I bring up curiosity? I'll tell you why, because of this. We all have one, we all have a phone. Um, I was looking up study after study after study. I was looking, and I didn't, because I didn't want to be biased. I was looking from like CNN to the Washington Post. I was on like life site news, common sense media. I was trying to like run the gamut of sources. So, you know, I wasn't finding biased sources. All of these studies and reports, excuse me, <clears throat> All of the studies and reports I was, was finding were saying that teens were spending up to nine hours a day on this. Nine hours. How many minutes a day do you think the same kids are praying? Okay, our, our priorities are pretty much off, to put it lightly. Nine hours a day. I found this one by USA Today. Found, found that kids were spending more time on media outlets than they were sleeping. Okay, I was, I was an eighth grade teacher two years ago, two and a half years ago, and every single one of my eighth graders had a phone, I think except one. Um, there was a report that I found in 2017 done by Common Sense Media. 42% of kids under the age of eight had a tablet or a device. That was just for them. So we literally, because of this, because of computers, because of anything, <laughs> Apple makes. We have unlimited access to anything. Okay, this leads to a host of problems if you don't know about things like the vice of curiosity. If, if kids aren't formed properly, they're not going to be cutting this time off because this thing feeds our appetites like nothing else. We don't have to wait for anything. We have instant gratification because of our phone. And, you know, viewing one thing on your phone can lead you to find something else, which can lead you to find something else. And look it, the devil isn't stupid. He's not gonna say, hey, jump off the cliff, Maria, but boy, will he get me close to the edge so I fall off when I'm not being vigilant and being prudent. Okay, he tempts us a lot of times with the near good, things that have the appearance of good. This is not inherently evil, but it can be used for evil things if you're not careful. St. Thomas More always said, a man should go where he is not tempted. We have to be very, very careful, especially people my age. I'm in my mid-20s, I have to be very, very careful. Okay, because of this vice of curiosity, and we, we have this constant 
bombardment to our, to our senses, and that does not help curiosity. Um, you know, when I was younger and we were bored, my mom would kick us outside and make us go play with each other. But kids don't really even need to be bored anymore. I don't have this written down, so I'm not going to give specific numbers, but I was watching this one uh, talk, and someone had mentioned, like, the YouTube video that people watch, like, the average time that people even watch a whole video is, like, three minutes. Like, they can't even get to the end before they're bored. Like, that's, that's the culture that we're living in. We have unreason, uh, um, unlimited reasons not to be bored anymore because of our phones. And one of the most dangerous parts, I'll tell you, is this of, this, of this knowledge of profane knowledge. I want everyone in here, okay, you're all listening to me. I want everyone in here to think of, you know, for 10 seconds about an awesome Christmas present you received. Maybe your kid gave it to you, maybe your grandfather, something. I want you to think of an awesome Christmas present. Think about it for five seconds. An awesome present you got. Maybe not Christmas. Maybe it's a birthday present. Okay? Here's the problem. 20 seconds ago, you were not thinking of that thing because you were listening. You weren't, you weren't thinking. But guess what? You have a sense knowledge of that object because it's something that you got. It's something that you felt and held, unless it was a hug and that was your favorite Christmas present. But it's something that you have sense knowledge about. And at any point, that image can be brought to the surface. So if you see something with your eyes or experience something because of the vice of curiosity, guess what? That memory can be brought up at any time. So why are we subjecting our eyes to these things that, you know, maybe later down the line we want to forget when we learn the principles more? Yes, we can pray for, you know, the grace of forgetfulness, I, get, uh, I guess, but why even put yourself in that situation? Um, it's very hard to get certain things out of your imagination. You can be easily triggered. Um, you know, a lot of people kind of ask the question now, well, if I look at this video, like, the gauge is kind of, well, will this bother me if I watch this? And we're so desensitized to sin as a culture that half the time the answer is going to be no. So we watch it. Instead of saying to ourselves, is what I'm about to watch suitable to my state in life? Is it going to help me grow in virtue or is it not? You know, once we start asking ourselves that type of question, guess what? We're going to find out, and I'm not necessarily talking to people with no phones here and no people, you know, that, that don't use these kind of things, but we're going to start, if, when we start asking ourselves these questions, we're going to find out that a lot of the stuff that we click on to watch, to read, etc., they might not be sinful, but they could be imperfections, which are fanning the flames of curiosity, which are going to burn us one day and turn into a bigger deal than they need to be. I would go so far to say that if you want to be a good Catholic in today's culture, regardless of your age, you have to get into the habit of asking yourself, is every little act I do suitable to my state? Is it profane knowledge that I have no business knowing? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a conversation that David and I, my husband, have quite often. You know, Pia's going to be growing up. My daughter's going to be growing up in this age. Does she need a phone? You know, can she have a fun when she gets married? Do they need phones in the convent? Like, these are the questions that we ask ourselves. Right, Pia? Um, so, so far we have this, like, lack of perfection. We have the vice of curiosity. Um, another problem that I find, especially with young people, I'm going to end on this issue, is a complete lack of reverence for the Mass, for the sacraments, or literally anything holy. Um, and, and I do want to define a few things before we go, because I think... This, out of all of them, is probably the biggest issue, not the reverence, what I'm about to say, or the irreverence, I should say. Um, the, there's many causes of irreverence, but preeminent among them, and I think the most uh, devastating one to our culture, is the heresy of modernism, um, which is rooted in immanentism. If we're not familiar with immanentism, it's a philosophical error by which we um, base a person's judgment of reality in himself other than, you know, that of God. It's exactly what I was doing for, you know, majority of my life growing up. I was putting the judgment of reality in myself rather than that of God. They would judge a thing, whether it's good or bad, whether it's true or not, based off of how they feel instead of looking at that thing objectively in reality. Modernism is a huge problem in today's culture. This leads to lots of issues. Issues in priests, issues in laity, in everyone. Why? Because the result of this immanentism is in matters relating to God, what we know of him, his perfections, his attributes, you know, things of revelation. 
These are no longer based in objective reality, uh, but on a person's own sentiments, really, by their own judgment, by their own feelings about the thing. And this completely destroys the virtue of religion because it takes matters pertaining to God and, and puts the judgment in themselves rather than the complete other way around, rather than subjecting ourselves to God and God's revelation. So because of this, we're gonna show reverence in only ways that we feel are suitable instead of what God has taught us specifically through revelation. In the Old Testament, God told the Jews exactly how to worship him. And he didn't say just um, that we should worship him, but how to do it. Um, it's tr it. After original sin, we are clueless. We're so clueless that in the New Testament, what did Christ do? He said, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't just say that we do it, it's this is how we do it. We're already operating under the effects of original sin. We're already doing it. And a lot of times we tend to hold something in value because it gives us emotional satisfaction. Not that the emotions are bad. The emotions and feelings are good. They're given to us by God. But they have to be subject to reason at a certain place and at a certain time. A lot of times we don't consider things excellent anymore because they don't give us emotional satisfaction. We have to be lifting our minds and our wills to God instead of looking at what we get the most emotional satisfaction from. You might get emotional satisfaction from doing things reverently, but that should not be the focus. I, I've talked with so many people in my Catholic talks. I've talked with a lot of people about this one thing, and it just has always resonated with me, especially when I learn more and more about the faith. I find a lot of issue in holy hours, actually. What people, people talk to me a lot about their issues in holy hours. They'll say this, they'll say, you know, when, I, when I'm in a holy hour and there's music playing and there's guitars, I feel all of this love towards God. <clears throat> but when I'm in a holy hour that's silent, I feel like he's left me. God's not any less present in that holy hour. But they feel like something is wrong because they're not feeling the same emotional satisfaction that they did when the guitars were going. Again, not saying that emotions or feelings are bad but they have to be subject to reason. If your feelings are telling you, God's not with me because I'm not feeling, I'm not crying, I don't have the music going, something is not based in reality in that statement, and that's a problem. So rever I feel like reverence has kind of just gone out the window the past 40, 50 years. Um, Pew Research, Research Center, if you're familiar, they did a poll in 2010. It's a long time ago, so I'm not sure the numbers have changed. If they have, they've probably gone down, not up. They asked Catholics, it was a poll for Catholics only, and they asked them about the real presence in the Eucharist. 55% of the Catholics in 2010 got the answer right about what the Eucharist was. 41% of them said that the church teaches that the Eucharist is a symbol for the body and blood of Christ. That's 41% of Catholics eight, nine years ago. 3% of them said they don't know what the church's teaching is. That's a problem, you know? What can we expect, though? If Mass is an audition for America's Got Talent, I mean, what do we expect for the reverence that's going to be there? Do we think anything serious is happening? Um, when you're putting the emphasis, especially in Mass, on the wrong things, other than the glory of God and the Eucharist, I mean, the Catechism calls, um, let me back up here, calls Mass the source and the summit of the Christian life. If we're not treating the mass like that, that's a problem. I feel like I'm saying that. So, guys, there's, don't worry. There's solutions to these problems. Okay, if we start putting the emphasis on, in mass on the wrong thing, that's going to be very detrimental to our state in life, to our growth in virtue, to everything. So I give, you, I give you a couple of these problems, and there's obviously a lot more issues that we can go into. But for me, I had a you know, horror of suffering. I... Uh, had this vice that I really am still working to get over called human respect, which is where I value the opinion of other people other than that of God. These are things that I, I, never, I never grew up learning about. I didn't know human respect was a thing. I didn't know curiosity. I didn't know any of these things were, were things. So when I think about my daughter now one day, I'm like, man, I, I hope Pia, when she's a teenager, will say, you know, I won't look at certain things because I'm not going to try and fall under you know, the vice of curiosity and potentially sin. I hope my daughter and God willing more children 
are able to know these things growing up. It puts a lot of good pressure, I think, on David and myself as parents um, to lead our children to heaven. That's our job with our children. I think it's good to ask ourselves, how am I doing on time, by the way? Good? 20? Great. It's good to ask ourselves a few questions. Are we stagnant in our faith? Do we just think we're good? Are we trying to grow more? Are we trying to learn more? Are we learning things that don't have anything to do with our state in life, that we don't need to know, that are good for our growth and virtue? Do we exercise the virtue of justice by giving God the reverence that is due to him in things like mass? Are we giving God the reverence due to him? We as a whole need to start asking ourselves these questions, finding out the answers, and guess what? For me, when I was learning a lot of these answers, a lot of times it was very jarring when I learned the answer. If you listen to our courtship talk, I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard the church's teaching on courtship. A lot of these things were very jarring to me because our world is so out there that these things that were normal years ago aren't now. People knew 50, 100 years ago what the vice of curiosity was. No one knows anymore for the most part. So we need to be able to find the answers to the questions that we have, and we need to be prepared that while we might not really like what the answers are, we need to be prepared, especially men, to seek the arduous and to do what's tough to overcome our faults, our predominant faults, and really grow in virtue. I think, too, as a, as a culture, as a whole, we need to, we have a very backwards way of looking at things. You know, we say, oh, if you eat at fast food restaurants, if you smoke cigars, if you, if you have a beer, like, that's really bad. Like, that's what our culture says now. But hey, you're shacking up with your girlfriend? Pfft. Guys, they think that's fine. They're like, why, why are you making it a big deal? They're like, but you eat fast food? Oh, no. We have very backwards things of looking at it. You know, for me growing up, I based my math schedule off of when I was working that day. Okay, not the other way around. I would literally only go to mass when I could fit it in. Oh, cringe, that's so cringy. Oh. Okay, again, you're gonna hear all the stuff in my judgment anyway, so might as well get it out, get out of the way now. Things that were seen as normal 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago are seen as too Catholic. You're too extreme. Look at everything happening in the news now. If you disagree with anything, you're toast. Um, and so people, including myself, not to need to not view these rules as things that are supposed to hinder us because lines in the road are for a purpose, okay? Are we free to drive from here to there? Yes, we are, but guess what? There's lines in the road. Why? To keep all the drivers from descending into absolute chaos. So it's for our good. We have to get it through our minds that, you know, we have to obey God to attain happiness. He created us, he owns us, he keeps us in existence. Nothing we have, no good, no anything, nothing that we are or nothing that we're striving to be is not except for him. And so we literally owe him everything. Even the submission of our wills and what we want to do at the time, because that also comes from him our will. So that being the case, we can never violate his laws and, and, do his, and, and violate his commandments if we're ever going to regain our moral compass as a culture. We just, ha we, we just can't, especially when, it, when it's tough. It is not tough for, to go from day to day things saying no to this, no to this, no to this. Because while it is a no to this bad thing, it's ultimately a yes to God. And I'm going to kind of close with this last thought. Um, There's a lot of information so far, but Fulton Sheen, I love him, clearly. He wrote this in regards to um, the Sermon of the Mount. He said this, Calvary was the price that Christ paid for the Sermon of the Mount. Only mediocrity survives. Those who call black black and white white are sentenced for intolerance. Only the grays survive. Doesn't that sound familiar to today's culture? Those who call black, black, and white, white are sentenced for intolerance. Only the grays survive. Can't really have an opinion in today's culture anymore, one way. So I guess my message is this. To any person that kind of decides that, like, okay, today I'm living as a black is black and white is white and not as a gray, you really need to pray for courage. And I'll tell you why. When I made my shift from my BC days to my AD days, or trying to be AD days, 
You would have thought I killed somebody on the blowback I got from Catholics too. You would have thought I became a cloistered nun, that I shunned the world and I was hiding from everyone and I viewed everyone as the world's worst sinner. People thought because I talked different, because I dressed different, because I tried to make a change um, in a positive way for Christ, I lost so many friends. People that would talk to me that the minute, literally the day that I decided to turn my life around, stopped talking to me. So you need to pray for courage because that is how the world is gonna judge you. Look at the state of our world and what's considered normal. So we, especially as young people, have to be prepared for that blowback. It doesn't mean we have to, you know, at the expense of being prudent, I mean, we shouldn't go around people saying, you're immodest, this, there's a prudent way to say things, obviously, but we do have to be prepared for blowback. And if we're gonna be prepared for blowback, we should be prepared to prudently answer. Study apologetics if you haven't. We should be able to defend our faith properly. I literally was called, too modest, too judgmental, too Catholic. I'm not really sure what too Catholic means. I'm going to take that as a compliment. But I'll I'll tell you this quote. Christ said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Okay? A fish that is alive swims against the current. The dead one is carried along with it. Okay, that's a very important thing, especially for young people to know. The fish that's alive swims against the current. The dead one is just swept along with all the other dead ones to be honest. Um, Pope Clement I, I'll end with this quote. Pope Clement I summed it up perfectly, I think, with a simple quote. He said, this world and the world to come are two enemies. Therefore, we cannot be friends to both. We We must decide which we will forsake and which we will enjoy. Okay, this world and the world to come are two enemies. We can't be friends to both. Which one are we gonna pick? Okay, at the end of the day, thanks be to God, we always have hope. God will always be faithful to us, much more than we can ever be faithful to him. So we should always be praying. We should always be asking for his grace. We should always be asking for his mercy. And we should be doing everything in our power to be knowledgeable about the faith, not be pleading ignorance at the end of the day at our final judgment. Okay, thank God for his mercy. Thank God for, you know, bringing me around. (laughs) I'm so embarrassed by my introduction because it's everything that I kind of talk against now you know, this pageant person, a former model. Oh, it makes me cringe. Okay, we should be doing everything in our power to change our lives, to not be settling for what's just good enough. We have to be striving for that perfection, not making decisions based off of what we think is okay. The church, in all of her wisdom, has the answers for everything. Maybe not for pageants, but for the principles behind pageants. Maybe not for parenthood, which they do, but the principles behind parenthood. Not for how we should be living in today's culture, but the principles for how we do that properly. So let's end with a prayer, if that's okay. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you so much, guys. Have a good one.